Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Elevated blood sugar over time increases your chances for metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and Alzheimer's. And they're primarily fixable and preventable with food. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And... You know, you are really in for a treat today. You know, when you meet someone and you're like, if we lived in the same city, we would be hanging out all the time. Well, that is how I feel about our next guest. I interviewed for The Better Podcast, Kelly Levesque. Uh, She is very well known. She's a celebrity uh, functional nutritionist uh, and wellness expert, best-selling author. Uh, She lives in Southern California with her husband, her two boys, and she mentions on the podcast, so it's free to uh, mention that she's also pregnant uh, with her third child. Uh, Before starting Be Well by Kelly, she worked in the medical field for Fortune 500 companies like Johnson & Johnson, and then moved into personalized medicine offering uh, tumor gene mapping and molecular subtyping to oncologists, and then eventually striking out on her own to start her own uh, business. Kelly received her bachelor's degree from the University of Southern California and completed a postgraduate studies in clinical nutrition through the University of California in Los Angeles and UC Berkeley. She's found her work as a holistic nutritionist to be the most rewarding of her career, according to her bio. Now, like I said, if Kelly and I lived in the same town, we would probably be hanging out a lot. There was so many uh, serendipitous moments uh, in our conversations, and this was a really fun podcast to record because in our recording dates, we had lined up for me to be on her podcast, uh, Be Well by Kelly. And then we took a 15 minute break, you know, go to bathroom, get someone to eat. And then we recorded another two hour doozy uh, for you today on The Better Show. So it was, so you'll hear us through the conversation say, when you were on my podcast, when you were, because it was literally just like 15 minutes prior to, you know, prior to that, to this recording. So what do we talk about? Oh my goodness, you are going to get a masterclass in blood sugar regulation, satiety, hormones, 
kids and kid and chill, like nutrition for children and pregnancy, uh, male and female differences. So we start off by kind of this really unexpected, but beautiful masterclass on what blood sugar regulation actually is. So she does a beautiful job of explaining that. We move into talking about some of the satiety hormones. So some of the hormones that make us feel full and how blood sugar and our ability to regulate blood sugar affects our metabolic hormones, our effects on hunger, cravings. We talk about leptin, we talk about ghrelin, we talk about CCK, we talk about all of the hormones, neuropeptide Y, we get into all of them. We talk about the protein leverage hypothesis. You've heard me talk on the show before around this idea that we will almost scavenge uh, if we are not getting enough protein and not getting enough fat, we will continue to sort of scavenge our environment. And it usually uh, results in an excess caloric intake um, to meet the needs of our protein requirements uh, for the day. We talk about breakfast, the importance of prioritizing protein at breakfast, how that regulates our mood, our hunger, and our cravings through the day. And then we talk, we move into, towards the end of the conversation, we move into um, talking about children and nutrition, uh, and we wrap up pregnancy in that as well. And I think this is a really important topic. It's really not talked about enough because I think that there's this assumption that like, hey, when I was a kid, I had ring pops and I had, you know, what, you know, candy and I had fuzzy peaches and I had all the things and I turned out okay. But what we're really missing, and maybe when we look at our children and we say, hey, like they're not obese, like it's okay for them to have like a, a candy here or there. Um, but what we're not considering maybe is our child's ability to emotionally self-regulate, their ability to focus in school, their ability to acquire new information and learn, which are all, of course, one of the main jobs of being a child, right, is to amalgamate information into the vortex, the mind mansion that is um, the brain. So we talk about like the box juices and the pea, you know, and the pizza. And we talk about all, all the things that kind of are introduced into a child's life, whether that's through school, that's at birthday parties, um, special occasions, and what the communication can be to our children and how we can help them recognize how they feel by eating certain foods. And I would gander to say, and I believe this actually came up in our conversation, that most 40-year-olds probably don't have a very good understanding of how certain foods can impact the way that they feel. So trying to start this skill set, the skill acquisition in our beautiful children uh, early on, I think is, uh, I think is a, a, a pursuit worth pursuing. All in all, I just had a fabulous time with her. She is definitely coming back on the show for round two. But until that time, I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Kelly Levesque. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, 
chorate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Kelly Levesque, I am just thrilled to welcome you to the show. We just finished recording on your podcast, and now I have the opportunity and honor of interviewing you on mine. So welcome to The Better Show. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. It's It was a pleasure to have you on mine, and I'm excited to continue our conversation. Yeah, actually, uh, this is almost like a this is almost like a part two. So because there was issues that or conversations or topics that came up when I was on your show, I'm like, okay, I got to remember to circle back to that when we when we get together. So um, all right, so before we dive into all the juicy goodness that we're going to talk about today, blood glucose and hormones and male and female differences and all pregnancy and kids and all the stuff, uh, just give us by way of background. Uh, you're very well known um, in the online health space and nutrition space for your work and your um, uh, uh, work around blood glucose control and why that's so important. Certainly, the books that you've written around, you know, the Fab Four. We talked, and we were very, we're very aligned in terms of uh, our philosophies for nutrition and healing. But just by way of background. How did you, how did you find yourself? You know, you mentioned uh, that you're a soccer player on the, on the, on, on your podcast. You mentioned that you're a soccer player. How do you go from, let's say, being a soccer player to maybe falling in love in some way with nutrition and deciding to pursue that as a career? Well, it's funny that you bring up being a soccer player. I played soccer my whole life from when I was five. Um, 
out of high school. Uh, and in college, I was playing club. I wasn't playing at the collegiate level. Um, but I always, I always was an athlete at heart. My favorite class in high school was health. Coach Rapp, shout out to Coach Rapp. It's the volleyball coach and he taught that class. Um, and then when I went to USC for undergrad, I was actually a business finance major. And I went that route because my dad was a business finance major at USC. I'm the oldest of three girls, um, sort of people-pleasing first daughter, but also in a place where I wasn't at the age of 17 because I went to college young um, just because of my birthday. I wasn't really thinking, okay, this is going to be the career for my rest, the rest of my life. I didn't, it, my dad just always said, you know, a business career is good for everything, Kel. Like you can, you can use it for anything where he had opinions about maybe like political science or international relations. He just thought everyone should go to business school. And so I, I ultimately did. And I called him the summer before my senior year in tears. And I had taken the course nature of human health and disease. And I had, oh, I had been diagnosed with ADD at a young age and my parents weren't keen on medicating me at a young age. They got me tutors and they were fine with, you know, me being a B average student. I got a perfect score in the class. Like it was the best grade I ever got. Um, and in nature that, that course, nature of human health and disease, I was so passionate about it. And that's what you'll find with kids who are potentially diagnosed with ADD. I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD, which is hyperactivity disorder. It was attention deficit disorder. Like I had a really hard time listening to my teachers talk about history when I wasn't interested in it. But I'll tell you one thing, the minute I was super interested in something, I was hyper-focused, almost obsessed to the point where I wanted to know everything about it. This was one of those classes where I would be so excited to get in my seat. I would listen and I remember what my teacher looked like. I remember where I sat. Like I have vivid memories of this class. And I will say for people, it's funny now looking at some of my friends in the business space. Um, you know, Jenna Kutcher is someone who comes to mind. Max Lugavere is someone who comes to mind, who's come out and said, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with ADD. And there is this obsession or interest that gets you so excited about a certain topic. And also a little bit of distraction that that distracts you away from where you may ruminate on not being good enough or what makes you good enough to stand up and talk about these things and just gets you excited to do. And it's a little bit of impulsivity that says like, oh, I'll just start an Instagram and I'll just, I'll go back to school and I'll just see some clients. So anyways, fast forward, I graduated um, USC in finance and nature of human health and disease as a concentration where I was wasn't able to get a science background for undergrad. I ultimately went back to school for all of my pre-med sciences at um, UCLA and UC Berkeley online, took extra classes to become a clinical nutritionist. But uh, my first career out of school was I spent eight years in cancer and genetics. So I my first job was a pharmaceutical sales rep, but I moved quickly moved into cancer and genetics where we were looking at breast cancers and ovarian cancers. And we were looking at the genetic pathways of what was feeding those tumors so that we could have targeted treatment with chemotherapy agents of what would be the most efficacious. Super cool technology, because if anyone knows anyone who's gone through uh, chemotherapy, which all of us do, it is super toxic and it is not targeted. It's kill everything in their body, their microbiome, every healthy cell, every cancer cell, beat them down and then hope they survive. And so this increased the efficacy of whatever 
chemotherapy agent they were using. The specificity of it. Yeah, they could say these genes are turned on, this type of chemotherapy will be successful for this type of cancer. So really cutting edge stuff. I got to present at tumor boards at some of the largest hospitals in um, California. And I had the eight West Coast states when I finished that career. But the whole time I was presenting PubMed research on cancer and new technologies in cancer and genetics, I would mind PubMed research being like, hmm, let's go back to that class where I learned nature of human health and disease, all about type 2 diabetes, all about heart disease, all about metabolic syndrome, all about how we store glucose as glycogen and use it as energy and make ATP. And how do I get back to that? And so I found myself just obsessed and loving it and talking about it with friends and being on the pulse of the wellness world. And one of my best friends was like, you need to stop talking about this at parties. You need to go back to school (laughs) and you need to just start helping people. And so that's ultimately what I did. Um, you know, I, I, I was lucky that my dad supported me through undergrad to get the business degree that he wanted me to have. And then I ultimately paid all the money to, uh, to become a clinical nutritionist. Um, I have a health, I did a health coaching certificate at first just to kind of see, okay, do I want to, do I want to work with people one-on-one? Is this, does this have legs? Does it have longevity? And I loved it. And so then I, I, you know, being, having the imposter syndrome that I think most people have when they first become a health coach, I ultimately decided I needed every certificate I could get. I needed to go back to, um, go, go back to UCLA or Berkeley to have these other classes under my belt and take a board exam as a clinical nutritionist. But, uh, in 2012, I started my practice. Well, finished school in 2011, started seeing people in 2012, friends, uh, you know, my husband's fraternity brothers, soon to be wife who wanted to lose five pounds for her wedding, my dorm friends, dad who had heart disease. And I would just, it was like, felt like house, like that TV show that people watch. I'd get into PubMed research and I would go, okay, he has, you know, he's considered a heart disease patient. He has, um, you know, a high cholesterol, but have they done a particle? You know, you go deeper and you're like, well, I don't even have his LDL or HDL particle numbers. So we don't really know what's going on here. And I'd go back to, I went back to my friend's dad and was like, you need this blood test, this blood test, and this blood test. And then we can really understand what's going on. I upped his fiber, lowered his fructose intake. And all of a sudden his numbers were coming back better. We improved his pooping so that he was removing old cholesterol. And it was, it wasn't cutting out egg yolks and red meat. And he barely drank any wine any or alcohol anyways. It was really dialing in on what was missing. And everyone felt, every client I had felt like kind of kind of like I had to do geometry proof or it was, you know, a a case like in that show house, which was one of my favorite shows. So I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I side hustled what I call Be Well by Kelly for three years, ultimately wrote my first book and was able to take the practice full time. Um, since then, I've written two books and my third book will come out in 2023. 20, uh, I have a, a food journal and um, online courses that teach people how to balance their blood sugar, whatever stage of life they're in from 
you know, when they're pregnant to when they're introducing foods to their children called the fab four under four, because those years are so critically important. The fundamentals, how I use, how you can use a smoothie in, in an appropriate way to get a good balance of macronutrients, enough protein, healthy fats and fiber, not a bunch of sugar. Um, and I, yeah, I love I love every day being able to do this. I'm really excited to have a podcast where you were a guest and more experts get to share. I just, I like helping people be well. I love that. That's so inspiring. And I I think, you know, you were talking about, you know, your patient with heart disease. And one of the things I still continuously see, and I'm sure you still observe this as well, where I'll have uh, patients that'll say, well, we did our lip, like I did my, and like, you know, my doctor said that my cholesterol is high. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. And what else? Like, where's the, can yeah. I see the LDL particle number? Like, where's the, apo- like, you know, what else, you know, and they, they might be looking at, let's say total cholesterol. Maybe they have triglycerides, uh, a calculate, like an LDLC, uh, an HDL. And that's like the extent of it. And you're missing, I, I just want to double down on this because you mentioned it. And it's one of my, it's the thing, one of the things that gives me like a nervous twitch when it's, <laughs> And when the doctor's like, oh, you have high cholesterol, it's like, define that. It need in in context, like you need context because mm-hmm. if you're just looking at the line and reading across to see whether or not that lab range, like that number fits into the lab range for that particular area in that particular, you know, area of the world, whether or not that's the standard deviation, you know, it the number is useless. And yeah. um just maybe just a, a moment or two to comment on that if you if you feel so inclined to. I do feel inclined. Um, 75% of heart attacks that are admitted to the hospital in ER have normal cholesterol numbers. So when a doctor uses a cholesterol marker as an indicator of major heart disease and inflammation in the body, which is the true problem, and they're not looking at inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, or homocysteine, and they then prescribe a statin, which increases that client's or patient's chance of Alzheimer's and long lifetime chronic lifestyle diseases that will not make them functioning in their late stages of life and will impact their brain health. I take major issue with this. It is, it is unfortunate that the very like, I would say like top layer of blood testing immediately the response is a prescription when we aren't looking at the why and like i said with my friend's dad who you know now i have clients that aren't my friend's dads and sisters and cousins but with with this particular client there was a lack of fiber in the diet there was a a slow transit time there that was those were two things that with a you know specific probiotic that I knew incre- increased transit time and decreased the chances of leaky gut with an increase in psyllium husk, which is a type of fiber known to improve a cholesterol ratio. And with, you know, sort of improved bowel movements, we had a major impact on his blood tests. And that's food, nutrition, and a, a over-the-counter probiotic supplement. Yeah, I think one of the things I am looking forward to because I do see the narrative changing now where we see medical doctors who are not traditionally like they don't have a lot of schooling in nutrition. So I think that the initial uh for many years the inclination was to brush it off as inconsequential, a coincidence, 
nothing that's, you know, significantly um, contributing to the health and, and wellness uh, or the outcomes of the patient or the prognosis of the patient or the client. I think now we're starting to see that massive boat, <laughs> like turning around a little bit and overcoming some of that inertia where we are seeing more and more uh, medical doctors, at least, uh, recognize the importance of nutrition. Um, and I think it's an important one because I think that there's some um, first, you know, medical doctors are sort of the cultural authority, right? So we're always sort of bu like butting up against, well, you know, my, how many times have I heard, well, my doctor said this and it's like, okay. And I'm also a different kind of doctor and I'm telling you something a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. So you always have to really consider, you know, just for the, you know, patients who are uh, listening to this or, or women, my Bettys who are listening to this, we always want to consider where the advice is coming from and is there a potential you know we were talking about this on your show a little bit about like is there a, a particular paradigm that they're working out of and i think one of the most beautiful things that when i'm looking for an expert let's say or when i'm vetting someone one of the most powerful things i think um is to hear someone say i don't know yes <laughs> like to have the hubris to say, well, this is not the problem. The nutrition is not the issue. Like the fiber that you added into the diet is inconsequential that this person has gotten better. Uh, I think is hubris. I think they've missed, you know, I'm not saying that the medical doctor who are, who is co-managing this case with you did that in any way, but I've seen it enough times where I think you miss the mark for collaborative patient care when you say, Hey, you know what? maybe the nutrition is playing something into this. And I just don't know enough about it to make a comment either way. So yeah. I'm just going to say, I don't know. And I'm going to let Kelly or I'm going to let whoever kind of manage this part. So I just, I wanted to, I wanted to just say that I think for, uh, cause I, I hear it several times a week now. Well, my doctor said, it's just a part of aging. My doctor yeah. said, this is not related to perimenopause. My doctor said, insert and you know insert symptom here um right. where we we often see unfortunately patients are brushed off and i think as a patient where the cultural authority is medicine i don't think there's I, there's nothing wrong with that but i do think that there needs to be um like there's no more excuse for not being able to advocate for yourself and saying all right i think i'm going to get a second opinion like i think i'm going to go i think that maybe diet might be part of it and i'm going to seek out nutritionists, you know, uh, such as yourself and uh, other qualified professionals, you know, yourself and, and some of the other esteemed guests that you've had on your podcast that I've had on mine for a second opinion. Yeah, I will say, you know, I have, um, I like to have a little grace with Western MDs. Um, and I'm sure you feel the same way because to think about the hundreds of thousands of dollars and <laughs> thousands and thousands of hours that went into their schooling, that they paid all of this money to become a an expert in their field with a heart of gold of wanting to help people yes, and ultimately wanting to come out the other end and, and to not really have control over that education because there are so many associations that are funded by big pharma and to know the way just coming from it, like spending eight years uh, working for, you know, a genetics company, a pharmaceutical company, a medical device company, understanding that at a certain point, a doctor will graduate residency. And then their contact with professionals introducing them to new technologies, new medications, or um, presenting even papers at an association 
weekend or conference may be the only time they have in their day to learn something new. And it really, I feel bad because it really isn't their fault that they're driven by reimbursement codes, that they are not having patients pay out of pocket, they're being reimbursed for a code. So a code would need a diagnosis. So when they see a problem, they want to diagnose it. They want to use a code because that's how they're going to get paid. They also want to do that as fast as possible because their paycheck is going to be determined after all of these years and hundreds of thousands of dollars is going to be determined by you know, how many patients they see in a day, how many diagnosis codes they can write down in a patient's chart. And then they're trying to fix them with little quick fixes that pharmaceutical reps or conferences are teaching them about. And they're hopeful for their patients that there will be some relief. But it is so backwards in that there is no reimbursement for teaching someone how to move their body, how to sleep well, how to eat well, how to balance their blood sugar and get off their diabetes medications, which if it is type two and not autoimmune can be done in a month's time. It's done multiple times over with every functional MD that I, that I work with. Their number one goal is to get people off statins, to get people off diabetes medications like metformin. Yes, they've used it. And we talked about it on my podcast. There has been a surge in specific communities where you have Hollywood's elite wanting to use these diabetes medications as a way to lose weight. But for the most part, if there isn't that type of cultural pressure being pushed on a functional MD, they are working to lower the number of medications these clients are on because they have the flexibility and ability to financially because the the patient is paying out of pocket for the right. 90 minutes they get with that doctor where they can talk about their entire health history from how they were birthed and breastfed to their their job if their boss is stressing them out if they are eating fast food if they're in a bad marriage if you know their kid has a you know god forbid a, a medical issue like there are so many stressors in life and so i do i feel bad because there are people like me who went to undergrad for finance and then went back to school for two years and love looking at new research and have the flexibility and time to deep dive a client's case and try to get to the bottom of it or ask questions that they don't have the time to ask. And that makes them feel bad about their job sometimes if I've made suggestions and we've seen improvements on a blood test and it's a 50-50. Like I've had doctors call me and be like, hey, I have other patients that I'd like to refer to you. Are you open to referrals? That's the biggest compliment I can ever get. And I'm always so thankful for those um, doctors who are really like looking at me as a way to support their clients. Um, you know, my OB who I've had on my podcast, Dr. Carmardian, you know, I get so many of her gestational diabetes patients outside of a hospital referral because we know what a hospital referral for gestational diabetes looks like. It's a piece of paper that says, eat 120 carbohydrates a day and try to eat 60 grams of protein a day. Suboptimal protein definitely yeah. diabetic levels of carbohydrates, yeah. whole grain breads, and pair those breads with a protein like a cheese stick. That's not giving them any education on what's breaking down to blood sugar, why their blood sugar is high, and what they can do to feel satisfied, full, and lower their nausea in their first trimester or second trimester or whenever they 
ultimately maybe when they get their glucose test towards the third trimester. But by that point, they've put on excess amounts of weight. Their baby's weight is higher. They're going to have a harder time delivering. They might, ha might have preeclampsia. And it's like, I get it. Like, I feel actually, I feel really bad because what gives me the authority when they've had 14 years of school and they have half a million dollars in student debt and the insurance companies are really paying their way and dictating how they get to practice. It's freaking unfair for them. It is unfair. And I think that in so many ways, like that debt, like that is crushing debt. It's like several hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. They, It's almost like an initiation, right? It's like you are right. going to be initiated into the system. And this is our guarantee that you're never going to step out of line. Right. <laughs> and then I think as you were describing you know, the, the sort of the journey for a medical doctor. I have uh, several, you know, my own medical doctor, very good friend of mine, very, uh, you know, I, I think we hold a lot of mutual respect for each other. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think that medical doctors get into medicine because they have a fundamental dream and wish in the same way that you and I have, which is to help move the needle uh, for their patients. Um, Dr. Casey Means, who I know, uh, you know, she comes to mind as someone who is such, uh, you know, kind of the same thing, indoctrinated into this certain way of thinking, and then was like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm listening to some of these other functional medical doctors that are speaking about, uh, you know, food as medicine. I know she talks a lot about Dr. Mark Hyman and, you know, others that have really influenced her uh, thinking, Dr. Robert Lustig and others. Uh, pretty much if you look at all the advisors on Levels, you'll see, the, <laughs> you know, the people that she's been influenced by. Uh, she's the founder uh, of Levels, which is a, a, a CGM uh, company. And, but she also had the courage uh, if she, hopefully this is an Easter egg for her. Let's like, we should send her this recording, but she had the courage to sort of leave that and say, this is actually not working for me anymore. It's not working for me to be in this system and to see these abysmal patient outcomes. So I do have hope for, for medicine. And I, I, I think that, you know, my original comment around like having more and more of them sort of wake up to the, to maybe the reality that it's even though they need, you know, the codes and they need to be able to sort of think about making money and paying off the debt. I think that as we, uh, the more that we can kind of unhitch ourselves from that system because it is a broken system. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the better patient outcomes and, you know, for populations and, and really even countries as a whole. So I know that's not why you're here to talk about this, but, and we somehow found ourselves <laughs> here, but I think it's, I think it's an important, I think it's an important, uh, point just to, be thinking about from a patient perspective, who am I getting advice from? Where are they motivated? Like, how are they motivated to care for me? And mm -hmm. maybe they have a, you know, is it is it worthwhile exploring one or several other opinions from people who may have different philosophical tenets that they abide by? Mm hmm yeah no it's 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 really hard. It's one of the one of the pieces of advice I always give clients if they've haven't explored functional medicine is to make that investment in yourself now because even when you're on my podcast talking about a hundred million women that potentially have polycystic ovarian syndrome, this is something that is not a hundred percent controllable with diet. But you can make a massive impact on your symptoms, your energy levels, your fertility, the way that you feel. And that's life-changing. That's an every single, every single day thing. And so it is, it is one thing to band-aid an issue 
it is another thing to think about what is your life really like? What is your day-to-day -day like? What are your energy levels like? How do you feel when you get up in the morning? And and it is truly about living a vibrant life and and feeling like you have control over that. And I mean, it feels daunting. Like, how are you going to control your, how are you going to make sure that you're vibrant every morning? I mean, I'm a mom of toddlers. We I, we talked about this. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I'm pregnant in my first trimester or just got out of my first. I'm in my second now. I am really tired. My kids wake up at 4.45, 5 in the morning. And I just got to this place where, where I put them down at 6.30 because they wake up so early. And I am literally going to bed at eight o'clock and someone might say, but you don't have those hours in the day where you're, you know, watching TV with your husband or catching up on the day or having a glass of wine. Like I'm pregnant, I'm not drinking. And I, I barely drink at that because I just don't like the way it makes me feel. But beyond that, it's like, I get it. I get that you want that second day where you're like, I'm just, a, I'm just Kelly. I'm not like feeding everyone and taking care of everyone. But ultimately the person that was showing up all day long when I was going to bed at 10 o'clock or 10.30 and waking up at 4.30 is not the person that I want to be for, you know, those 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And I had to make the, you know, make the choice that this was going to have a major impact on my health, the way that I felt, the way I showed up, my outlook on life, my productivity at work, my ability to do these interviews. Like I wouldn't be sitting here if I went to bed at 11 o'clock last night and woke up at 4.30 this morning. It would be, un these sentences wouldn't be coherent. Yeah. And I think there's cycles to, you know, I love to talk about cycles, but there's seasons, right? So I remember where you are now, I once was where, you know, we touched on this on your, on your show where, you know, my morning routine used to consist of my kids waking me up because I was exhausted from, you know, whatever the event was overnight, you know, someone had a nightmare. I had one of my, uh, Andreas, my older son had night terrors for a while, which was very, That's hard. uh, yeah, it was, it was very hard. Um, and it feels like it felt like in the moment that it, this would never end, that I would always feel like this. And then you blink. It really does feel like it, you blink and now they're 12 and they're 10. And while they still need me, the cadence and the rhythm is a little, is a little different, right? So they're able to dress themselves now and, you know, they're potty trained now and all, you know, ob obviously all the things, right? <laughs> Not breastfeeding anymore. Um, probably my younger son would, uh, would still breastfeed, <laughs> if he could, but, you know, so th these are, you know, I had one, my friend uh, once said this to me and I remembered this um, and I, st I still say it now. It was so impactful to me. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying, but it's like the days are long, but the years are short. And it really does feel like that. So you may have, um, you, you, you may be, maybe right now for you, it might be intense with like them all being very young and, you know, being pregnant. And there's like sort of an extra layer there, which I want to, I definitely want to talk about nutrition and pregnancy and kids certainly. And maybe we'll, maybe we can start there. Um, but I, I also think that it's important for, you know, everyone that's listening that, there, there's seasons for everything. Like things are intense for a while. Like there's always periods of contraction and expansion, right? Things are always like intense for a little bit. And then there's like a little bit of a break, right? There's an, and then things will become intense. You know, if someone gets sick, you know, you know, whatever it is. And then there's a break, then there's relief and the storm is done. So I think um, it's just it's always, it's all, I, I always try to keep it top of mind. It's, I don't always do it. So I'm, I'm calling myself out here, but when things do become intense, they can, it, the tendency can be this pain is going to be here forever. This pain point is going to be, 
I'm going to be riding this out until my last days. And it, it really isn't. It's really, and every contraction, and then we'll, we're going to get to the science, I promise. But like, you know, every contraction, I feel like um, there's a lesson in it right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the lessons for me was morning routines are actually sexist. Like we talked about this on your show. I was like, these guys, God love them. These men that are talking about these beautiful, elaborate, hour long morning routines, <laughs> like my hair is like up on, like it's all in a rat's nest on top. Like I'm wearing my pajamas, you know, maybe I've breastfed. So, you know, maybe I have a breast out, maybe I don't, you know, like yeah. it's, it's very intense and it's like, it's not, this, you know, we used to, I used to, um, when I was still practicing as a chiropractor, I would have, I would have business mentors and they were all men. They had these huge practices, like thousand member practices. And then when you sort of, and I remember looking at them and being like, gosh, like, why don't I have a thousand visits this week? Like why? And then I sort of would compare worst thing to do, but then when you, you know, I would do it. And then I was like, oh, I understand the they have you know i had this nickname like these cairo wives right like these women in the background that would raise the kids take the kids to school and then they would come to the office and they were the office managers so they would run the office and of course they had as much invested in making sure that that office was successful as the chiropractor did mm -hmm. and i remember being like where's my cairo wife like where's my you know like where's my you know person who is my family member who's going to raise the kids for me and you know run the office for me and so all this to say, it's very different for women. Never compare yourself. And we all have cycles and seasons. So with the <laughs> Definitely never compare yourself to men because we yeah. do. We do have these seasons. There's definitely been people in the wellness world that I've, we'll say, been tracking with number of books we've written, podcast launch dates, kind of like growing together, supporting each other on social. And then I go out on maternity leave and I take a break for three to six months and I'm really like progesterone's flowing. I'm pregnant. I'm chilling. I'm tired. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why is social media important? And I'm like, you know, I changed my mindset and I really am just focusing on my family, my kids and my clients and all of those extra things that take this extra engine of work, unless you have a bunch of people working for you, which I run a really tight operation for flexibility purposes and, you know, my sister works for me and she's a part, you know, part-time employee and has one on the way and a toddler too. Like we just, I want, I want to surround myself with the people I want to spend the most time with. And sometimes that means like you hire your sister. Um, but you see these jumps in growth for the, for those people or another book deal or a, a, a big break. And the last thing, you know, I've had to learn the last thing I can do is compare myself to yeah. men in my industry because they're leading completely different lives. They have those morning routines. All they're doing is building their social media platform and building their podcast and writing their books and getting in their sauna and cold plunging and then maybe checking out the new restaurants in LA. And I'm like, gosh, I remember when I used to do that. I remember when Chris and I, when all that was for me to focus on was writing books and and, you know, building my business and being there for my online community. And dang, I'm trying my best to be there as often as I can. But I don't want to look back and say that I missed the little years or that I missed, you know, the ha Halloween parade at Sebastian School or that I was, you know, I wasn't the one that went in at two in the morning for a nightmare or to hold someone who needed to be held. Like it just... I can't have those regrets and I'd rather go that. slow and write. 
Yes. Amen. All right, let's let's transit. Let's do a, a soft right, soft left into uh, blood sugar because I think that this is, as I was mentioning, uh, the top of our conversation. This is what you are very well known for. Uh, even you know, talking about your patient with heart disease, and you know, we were talking about um, you know mentioning some of the you know the uh, type two diabetic, uh, type two diabetes medications. Why? Why and how maybe did uh, blood sugar and blood sugar regulation uh, become one of your, uh, let's say, foundational tenants uh, that you try to work towards with your clients? And then uh, maybe the add-on question to that is, why should patients care about that? Like, why should the consumer, why should we care about blood glucose regulation? Yes. Um, for so many reasons. First, I became obsessed with it in that class, Nature of Human Health and Disease, where I learned that blood sugar balance and dysregulated blood sugar would lay the foundation of inflammation that would increase your chances of any and all chronic lifestyle diseases. So I feel like that teacher was ahead of his time. He was doing time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting. He was the only person I'd ever met in my entire life that was OMAD. That's one meal a day. And he was doing that in 2000. So that was a long time ago. Um, but he also poured himself into blood sugar science. And um, I would never advocate for one meal a day, especially for women, men. Okay. But we, as we talked about on our podcast together, if they have an on and off switch for for fat burning or or um, being fat adaptive, we have like a control board of 55, 55 switches. So please don't do that. Um, but what I what I did learn is that the elevation. Well, first I want to just explain blood sugar if anyone doesn't understand it. So you have you have different macronutrients that you can eat proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. Proteins break, break down to amino acids, fats break down to fatty acids, and carbohydrates are going to break down to fructose and glucose. These are your sugars, your starches, um, things like potatoes, pasta breads, fruits, um, things that are also, fruits are, are primarily sugar, you know, glucose and fructose, but you have other things like liquid sugars, like maple syrups. I always tell my clients to open their emojis. And if they see an emoji, it's most likely a carbohydrate from a oh my God, that's to so funny. That's a right. froyo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's clearly a protein, it's probably a car Other than a the carbo. steak, there's a steak emoji. Yeah. yeah. The steak mm -hmm. and the chicken yeah. and the yeah. avocado, yeah. you know what those are, but yeah. otherwise it's probably a carbohydrate. And so when we look at how things break down, fats break down to fatty acids, they have zero effect on blood glucose. Proteins um, break down to amino acids. I like to keep it pretty simple for my clients and say they have minimal to no effect on blood glucose levels. I will put the caveat asterisks that your body has the ability to create glucose from proteins called gluconeogenesis. Um, but that's also important for you to note because there are essential amino acids that you have to get from your food, whether you are raw vegan or carnivore, I don't care what lifestyle you're leading. Your body needs amino acids to make cells in your body neurotransmitter neurotransmitters, hormones, um, skin cells, muscle cells, everything. So critically important that we're getting amino acids from our food. Fatty acids, we have essential fatty acids. You hear all the omegas, right? Omega-3 being anti-inflammatory, that brain healthy fat that we talk about um, from seafood or pasture raised meats really also essential that we get from our food. So we can't create, when we say we can't create these endogenously in our body, we have to get them exogenously. But when you get to the carbohydrate macronutrient, there is no 
essential carbohydrate. And so that's important for people to realize. Reasons for eating carbohydrates would be for things like phytonutrients, fiber, antioxidants, um, enzymes, uh, poly, things like polyphenols, right? And for the most part, the way that these types of carbohydrates, whether you're having leafy greens, fibrous fibrous cruciferous vegetables, low glycemic berries, like blueberries, blackberries, all that good stuff. The benefits that those are having on your body are when they interact with your gut microbiome. And what they do is they interact with the gut microbiome. The microbiome is going to ferment those types of foods. They're going to use, ferment those types of foods and create postbiotics, which are these little chemicals that are anti-inflammatory. They can be fats like short chain fatty acids that we know are fuel for our epithelial lining or our gut lining. We know they're fuel for our brain. And we also know that all of the really awesome, what we would call antioxidants, things like polyphenols, curcumin and turmeric, our microbes are actually what make those highly potent and bioavailable in our body. So the polyphenols that we eat, um, a very small percentage are available inside of our body, uh, less than 20%, it's closer to 10. But when they're fermented by microbes, the microbiotic uh, or the microbes produce a postbiotic polyphenol antioxidant, that's 90 to 100% bioavailable for our body. So we are in constant, um, it is a an ecosystem of us and our microbes, right? But what I want you to know is that the carbohydrates, when they break down, they break down to, like I said, glucose or fructose. And so glucose is also the sugar that's in our blood. So let's say, for example, we were to take one of those emojis. Let's use the croissant emoji, you eat a croissant, you chew it, right? So you have some enzymes in your mouth that are breaking it down. It drops into your stomach. You're going to have hydrochloric acid and more enzymes breaking it down in that digestive process throughout your stomach and your and your small intestines. And as it's broken down and then fermented by those microbes, it's then going to pass through your epithelial lining or your gut lining, which is one cell thick, and it's going to make its way into your body. And so the goal would be that those would be broken down to individual units of glucose and fructose. Now, fructose is going to be metabolized in your liver, so it's not going to have an effect on your blood glucose. Indirectly, it will. But your glu anything that's breaking down to glucose, sugars and starches, is going to make its way into your bloodstream. And it's going to go into your bloodstream. So I always tell my clients, if you were to have a croissant and it was a large croissant, let's picture... 10 little croissant emojis floating in your bloodstream. They've made their way in. That's your blood sugar going up. And your, your body looks at that as a source of energy. And it says, okay, great. Let's put it away so we can use it for energy. Because you're not going to use it actually in your bloodstream. It needs to make its way into a cell to create energy. And so insulin is released from your pancreas. This is a storage hormone, an anabolic hormone. It's going to shut down lipolysis or the breakdown of fat. And so we take that glucose and we pull it into our liver. We we wrap it up into glycogen and we store it as glycogen in our liver. And then we do the same thing in our muscles. So you can think about your liver as the first gas tank. It's going to store some gas. And you can think about your muscles as the trunk. Like you don't have extra room in that gas tank because you only got a little bit in your liver. But guess what? You can buy a mini Cooper by just lifting a little bit of weights. You can buy, uh, you know, a, a Explorer. If you're the person who lifts bigger weights, then you have a bigger trunk. Or you can be the person who 
you know, builds up those muscles until they're the size of a suburban. And now you have a huge trunk and maybe you even put a Thule on top, right? So you think about your muscles as the storage tank of excess sugar and insulin does this amazing job of pulling them into your tanks, right? So into your gas tank, which is your liver and into your trunk, which is your muscles, right? And so that's the only thing you have control over. You don't have control over how much space is in your liver or and you you do have control over the of, of the size of the tanks where you can store sugar, which is your muscles, right? So we think about this spike of eating a carbohydrate, breaking it down through digestion, pushing that sugar you know, or absorbing that sugar into our bloodstream, our blood sugar going up, insulin being pushed into our bloodstream to put it away into our liver and our, 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 our trunk or our muscles, right? The two really amazing places that store sugar for energy. And that, that curve normally happens on a three hour window if we're eating traditional American foods, like whole grain toast, you know, a, a bagel, bagel and bagel, pancakes, yeah, yeah. avocado toast, you name it. Right. So, on average, your blood sugar will go up for 90 minutes and it'll crash down for 90 minutes. Old science, old um, metabolic health science would say you should eat five to six small meals a day. Well, why would they tell you that? Well, if you eat your breakfast at six and then you have your snack at nine and then you have your lunch at noon and then you have a snack at three and then you have dinner at six, they're preventing a hypoglycemic crash from easily, highly palatable, over-processed carbohydrate foods. And they're keeping you feeling not like crap. But actually, over time, what this has proven for decades is that as an American, you know, um, as Americans and in our country, we have not only seen inflammation go up because insulin is a driver of inflammation, but we have seen blood fasting blood sugar not come back down to a normal range, but actually go up over time. And that happens in clients who I track with CGMs. You mentioned Casey Means. I love levels. I'm an advisor for levels. I'm obsessed with the fact that they are making this available to the American population, that we're getting really amazing data on blood sugar because it's so critically important. Learning to balance your blood sugar with whole foods, and I'm going to teach you how to do that, not only elongates that blood sugar curve, so it isn't a spike and crash in three hours, but that you can actually go four to six hours between meals if you have a proper amount of protein, healthy fats, and fiber-rich foods, because those together are slowly digested and elongate that cur curve over time without a really high spike, without your pancreas overreacting with insulin and having that hard crash. And that is like the cool benefit of being able to have CGMs on a healthy population is we can say, hey, wait a second. Remember how we said that the normal range of glucose was 80 milligrams per deciliter to 120 milligrams per deciliter? <laughs> Actually, healthy yeah. people keep their blood sugar at 70 milligrams per deciliter to 110 milligrams per deciliter. And an hour post meal, they can get their blood glucose back down under 100 milligrams per deciliter because they have those awesome trunks that suck up sugar in a really easy way and use it as energy. And it's not being stored as fat. It's not creating inflammation in the body. And they're so hungry for that glucose that they can eat it up. So I can go on and on about the benefits of balancing blood sugar and learning to balance blood sugar from um, focus and retention to mood, to hormone balance, to uh, meet, 
basically having the body composition that you're looking for to energy levels, sleep. I mean, elevated blood sugar over time increases your chances for metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and Alzheimer's. And these are diseases that are crippling our nation, bankrupting our healthcare system, and they're primarily fixable and preventable with food. And so I have to empower my clients and my community to know that this is in their power, that um, 100 milligrams per deciliter fasting blood sugar, even though their Western medical doctor will not tell them that is a problem, they have twice, they're twice as likely to have Alzheimer's. They're twice as likely if they're going to get pregnant to have gestational diabetes, they're twice as likely to have type 2 diabetes by the time they hit perimenopause. So we need to promote understanding, well, then if if I don't, if I can go four to six hours between meals and have a low curve that is an elongated, nice curve, how do I do that? And so that's what I teach people to do with the Fab Four. It was like, I feel restricted with an eat, do not eat list. Don't give me that, but tell me what foods actually support blood sugar balance. And if you go back to the macronutrients I was just talking about, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, protein and fat are breaking down to amino acids and fatty acids, primarily having zero minimal to zero effect on blood glucose. What are those things doing? They're regulating over half of your hunger hormones and making you feel full and satisfied. You have nerves that innervate your gut that are specifically looking for amino acids and fatty acids like omega-3s. These are essential for our body to get to them. And we talked about this before the show started, but protein satiety theory is really looking at people will eat until they get the amino acids that their body needs. And now we know there are actual nerves innervating your gut looking for these things every single day. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. This is so such you- an important point. Yes, keep going. Keep going. Yes, yes. If you can, if you can eat protein and fat, that are going to regulate your hunger hormones and give your body what it needs, your body can register that those things are available, then what are you doing to fuel your microbiome, to prevent leaky gut, to get all of those postbiotics, to slow down the digestion of that meal? That's where, when you know, we talked about it on my podcast, where the plate of leafy greens and fiber. So the fab four is protein, fat, fiber and greens. And so when I say fiber and greens, those are the carbohydrates I'm looking for on a plate because when you mix those macronutrients, when you mix protein and fat and fiber-rich carbohydrates and leafy greens, you are getting that slow drip of glucose because where you might have a croissant, which is 
we talked about it. It's a, it is a processed carbohydrate. It's an acellular carbohydrate. You can think about it because it's broken down to a flour and then made into something. There's no fiber holding the sugar or the starch in that croissant intact. Whereas if you were to eat a whole food, these are called cellular carbohydrates. The sugar and starch is literally wrapped in a fiber cell. You have to chew through it, digest through it, ferment through it to even release those sugar and starches. And when you're pairing those fiber-rich foods with protein and fat, not only are you slowing down that digestion, but the food itself, the cellular carbohydrate, which I think, you know, nature does a beautiful job of providing us with carbohydrates. We shouldn't even, you know, I get a little bit, uh, I don't fearful or annoyed, I would say when people are like, well, carrots and tomatoes have high carb because they're used to being on a ketogenic diet or thinking really in those terms. But I have to remind them like your sugar and starches when you're eating, when you're not drinking tomato juice or carrot juice, and you're actually eating the food, the fiber is there to support your microbiome, to slow down the digestion of that food. And when you pair those foods appropriately with protein and fat, it's going to have a minimal effect on your blood glucose. You may go up 10, 20 points milligrams per deciliter max and be coming back down in a gradual way. That gradual curve decreases cravings. It allows you to continue to feel like you're functioning mentally. It gives you that sustained energy versus let's say you had that croissant, your blood sugar shot up for 90 minutes. It crashed down for 90 minutes. Now you're irritable. You want another cup of caffeine. You're looking in your pantry for another bit of food. You're having a hard time putting together sentences in an email or in an interview. Like it is, it is having a massive impact on your mood, your cravings and your functioning. And you don't may know may not even realize it. So the biggest keys to the kingdom that I can give my clients is just this understanding that of how powerful protein and fat can be in regulating hunger hormones and prioritizing those things, especially when you break a fast first thing in the morning can get you on this curve of like, you're on the little kids train at the roller coaster, right? You know, in the amusement park, you are not on Montezuma's revenge. You are rolling and chilling and you're rolling into that next meal going, okay, what do I feel like for lunch? Not like hurry, move out of my way. I need to get into the fridge or the pantry and give me the fastest thing I can get my hands on because I am not in a good place. And that's this place where I tell clients, I know every, not everything. I know a lot about blood sugar science because, because I'm so obsessed with it. And even for me, there are days when I'm like, oh, I grabbed the wrong thing and I'm rolling downstairs after a meeting on Zoom or something kind of crazy in the morning and I know why I'm reaching for something and I still feel like wow I'm I'm such a failure like I can't I'm I'm grabbing this like you know my kids crackers or I'm grabbing this carbohydrate and I have to remind myself I'm a human being that is responding to my body's metabolism of glucose. This has nothing to do with my self-control. And I always am harping on that with my clients because we get in our head like, I'm a failure. How shameful. Why can I not get it together? I always have to start over. But if you can get strategic with how you start the day to support blood sugar balance, it makes those next couple of meals so much easier to manage. And And so I just have to say, like getting an understanding of blood sugar balance and how to support it doesn't mean you're not eating carbs, but it means that you're eating the fat for it. It means you're eating protein, you're eating fat, you're eating those vegetables, you're having some leafy greens. And then say, you know, if the whatever you're into, like I have these buckwheat toast 
they look like English muffins and I'm pregnant, you know, I'm like craving the carbohydrates, but I just say, okay, like I'm going to have one, ha- like toast up a half of one of those things, but I am going to have the eggs first, or I am going to have the, you know, Teton sausages first. And I'm going to throw some avocado on that toast so that it blunts that body's reaction. Adding that fat and fiber is going to slow down that digestion of that, you know, that, um, bun or whatever, you know, the, English muffin-y type thing. And I don't feel bad about it because I understand how to slow it down. And then I don't feel bad when I have a day where I've made a mistake because I don't take it personally. It's not an attack on who I am as a person. It's just an understanding that I see, like I just have gotten out of the habit with this nausea or with this season of sitting down and just putting the protein on my place plate first or blending up the protein powder if I don't have time. And so definitely for anyone listening, give yourself grace, but start to understand that your body does need those essential amino acids and fatty acids. And those do work together with fiber and greens as a symphony to allow your body to just have a nice, even curve that is low, slow to be absorbed and slow to drop, which doesn't take up all of your energy and allows your pancreas not to overreact. When we have let's say something that is an acellular carbohydrate. So a processed carbohydrate, something that's been a flour or sugar, let's even say orange juice. Let's say you have a big glass of orange juice in the morning. You've done that for your breakfast for a long time. There's nothing there. It's a liquid sugar. It is going to hit your stomach, rocket through your, um, you know, your epithelial lining, hit your bloodstream and jack your glucose up 30, 40, 50 milligrams per deciliter, depending on the quantity. And that's going to be really hard the rest of the day. And so if you can set yourself up for success, have some eggs, have some avocado. Okay. Your kids have some tangerines or there's an orange out, have a couple of real pieces of fruit on the back end of that protein, fat, fiber, and greens, because it's this layer that's going to blunt that, that glucose expression and, and curve. This is so important. So what you're what you're touching on is this protein leverage hypothesis, which is that if we don't if we don't get enough protein through the day, and particularly I want to double click on in the morning, then we are going to overeat on in all in all vertical all macros and total calories likely as well. So you're going to overeat your fat, you're going to overeat your carbohydrates, and the likelihood of you being in a caloric surplus is going to be very high. Mm-hmm. Let's build out this story of um, our metabolic hormones since we're here. Uh, you mentioned uh, the amino acids and the free fatty acids. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the satiety hormones. CCK uh, would be certainly um, uh, related to being able to, uh, you know, it's released in the presence of fat, released in mm-hmm. the presence of protein. And I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about leptin as well. And as we're kind of building out this, um, um, you know, picture of our uh, metabolic hormones. I do want to also wade into the waters of some of the differences between men and women. Uh, This is something that I've really noticed, particularly in the um, when I've had women who've been on the ketogenic diet for too long, or they're aggressively fasting. Typically, what I notice is they they women will hit the, uh, let's say, hunger point faster than men. So if you have, you know, a man and a woman, let's say they're equated for even for, uh, you know, for BMI, um, what you'll find is that women will typically get hungrier earlier if they're if they're both engaging in a fast, let's say, and let's pretend it's both a water fast, it's like a non-caloric liquid fast, right? So they're only allowed, let's say water, maybe some herbal tea or coffee. 
they're going to hit that hunger point much sooner than women, uh, than men, than their male counterparts, even when they're, even when the male and the female have the same BMI. So let's talk a little bit about how blood sugar impacts satiety hormones like leptin, uh, CCK. We could talk about ghrelin and then maybe some of the, some of the, uh, you know, the differences between, uh, men and women as well. And, and I'll also build into this question the importance of protein at breakfast, because I think either women are trying to fast in the morning, like skip breakfast altogether. And this kind of comes from this fasting movement, right? This like 16, eight, start eating at 12 o'clock again, very male driven. Um, or, you know, as you mentioned, it's like they're eat. It's like, I call it sometimes the mom diet, right? It's like, you know, you sort of eat whatever's left over on the kid's plate, or you have, you know, typical breakfast foods in North America are things like cereals, they're bagels, um, you know, toast, oatmeal, oatmeal and oatmeal. Exactly. So mm-hmm. how can we, uh, and maybe let's just even assume that someone who's listening is like, you know what, Kelly, I'm not going to give up my toast. Like mm-hmm. the toast is going to happen. How might we say, okay, it's not, you know, let's, let's have, um, let's not think about all the things you can't have, like you said, because then all your brain is going to think about is the elephant in the room, right? It doesn't hear the word not, it just hears, you know, the words. So how can we keep the toast in, let's say, or keep the oatmeal in, let's say, um, but maybe speak a little bit about nutrient timing and how that might blunt, uh, or elongate that blood, that blood sugar curve as well. Definitely. Okay. So let's jump into some hunger hormones. So ghrelin is a really easy one to talk about because I call it the gorilla hormone. Ghrelin is a hormone that is high until your stomach is stretched and it's the lowest about an hour after you eat. And so one of the biggest problems I see with women is under eating in in regards to quantity for ghrelin. And so that might look like, Ooh, and you talked about women maybe fasting or the mom diet, but we also have to talk about how the 80s and 90s or early 2000s may have affected their eating. And that might look like I'll have an egg. I'm going to have a hard boiled egg for breakfast and that's it. And a hard boiled egg and a a half a grapefruit or a cutie. And when I look at something like that, we're under eating calorically, but we're, we're starting our blood sugar curve. So we're going to be really having a hard time on the back end of that, of not having enough to satisfy us for even three hours, let alone four to six, but we're trying to white knuckle it at those kind of moments. And the mom diet does the same sort of a thing where you have a little bite here and a little bite there, but you're not ever really hitting those satiety points. So satiety points, I like to talk about them in the ways, how are we regulating each and every one of these hunger hormones that are so critically important to feeling full and satisfied and not thinking about food for four to six hours? Because think about all the things you could do if you weren't thinking about food. That requires you to eat like an athlete, work out like an athlete, and then you'll perform like one. So first thing, first thing first is ghrelin. Ghrelin requires fiber and the stretching of your stomach. It requires quantity. So that for people may look like a three to four egg veggie omelet with a little bit of avocado. It may look like a, you know, if they're a smoothie person, I want it to be a thick smoothie. I want you to throw some nuts on top and crunch. I want you to have, if you're having protein, I want you to have leftovers. I mean, 
sort of random, but this morning, um, and I even had it right before our podcast because it was fast. I had leftover chicken veggie soup that had, you know, a little bit of rice in it and some cilantro. It's like kind of like a Mexican chicken soup. And I had that for breakfast this morning randomly. And I had like an extra cup before this podcast and I'll go figure out what I'm going to have for, for lunch in a little bit. But when you know, when it comes to quantity, that's going to be important for regulating ghrelin. So your protein bar, your one egg, your little bites off your kid's plate, that's not going to stretch your stomach and regulate ghrelin. And ghrelin's a really strong hunger hormone. So that's why you feel so calm and relaxed after dinner, which is when most people eat a quantity that would cause that stretching. So then you want to talk about CCK. So CCK is a satiety hormone. So um, it's more less of a hunger hormone, more of a satiety hormone in that when you eat fat, I call it like the cozy blanket. You're on the couch, CCK wraps you up in that like Sherpa blanket, that fake faux fur, like you're cozy, you're good. And the good example for this would be like people living in that low fat uh caloric restriction diet era where they're having poached chicken or just a plain chicken breast and some steamed broccoli with a bunch of Lowry's seasoning salt to try and make it all taste good. But there's no fat, there's no olive oil, there's no pesto, there's no avocado. How do you feel when you just eat that chicken and broccoli versus how do you feel and how long will you feel sustained if you were to have that all chopped up and sauteed in some pesto or have it with a bunch of guacamole or a drizzle of chimichurri that was loaded with olive oil? It's a completely different experience that you don't feel restricted. You really feel calm, but that fat is going to coat all of that food. It's going to cause your body when the fat is recognized during digestion to release cholecystokinin or CCK. And you're going to be like, Oh, this is really good. I feel super satisfied. I'm not looking in my pantry for what's next or trying to white knuckle it to my next meal. And so that's a really, really important one. We used to call what we used to call when I I used to compete in figure, we used to call chicken and broccoli. That was like the mainstay, especially like right before you got on the show, like a month before you were Mm -hmm. out of a show, we used to call it bricking. It was like just having bricking again. And it's like, I remember broccoli and chicken. And I was like, if I have another chicken, I think I'm going to sprout some wings. Like this is ridiculous, you know? Okay. Sorry. Go on. No, it's, it's important to recognize that there are there are hunger hormones and there are satiety hormones and both are important and both need to be regulated. So then you have, um, so then let's talk about leptin because that's a really strong one and that's released from fat cells and it tells your brain that your fat cells are full and satisfied and you have what you need. You have the store so you can calm that appetite down. The problem with leptin is it's like insulin. You get something called leptin resistance and that comes in the presence of inflammation. So if someone's eating a highly palatable processed food diet that has a, a lot of blood sugar spikes, which then results in a lot of insulin, which then results in a lot of inflammation, we can start to see insulin resistance set in where our muscles and our cells are not being, they're not doing a good job of sucking blood sugar out of our uh, out of our bloodstream and into our muscles to be used as energy. But it doubles down on that because then all of a sudden that inflammation, it, it's interfering with uh, the communication from our fat cells with leptin to our brain to say, hey, we're good. You're full, you're satisfied. And so it feels like we are constantly hungry. And 
what is really nice about say your estima diet phase one, those first couple of, of months where someone's like tracking with their cycle and doing a 70, 20, 10 is they're getting those essential amino acids. They're getting those essential fatty acids. They're getting a slow drip of carbohydrates, but they're kind of getting rid of the noise of the processed foods and the excess insulin spikes and blood sugar, you know, aggressively high blood sugar spikes that would create this inflammation. And then all of a sudden the messages are getting there. And so that's kind of one of the benefits of a ketogenic diet when someone's been kind of like what we'd say maybe off the rails and feeling kind of out of sorts with their eating behaviors is really more for me when I work with clients is the stripping away and kind of cleaning up and sticking to the fab four or being a little bit more strict with it for a few weeks. You can really just see the satiety hit set in for clients where they go, Oh, I'm like not thinking about food as much. I'm not feeling like I need to pull over into a drive through or grab something at the circle K. Like they're, they're not worried about when their next meal is because they're getting what they need essentially from their diet in the form of amino acids and fatty acids. But most importantly, these signals are getting to the brain. They're getting what they need. And there are other hunger hormones like PYY where, um, where if you're not eating enough protein, you're going to crave sugar. And this is a mixed message where there are hunger hormones that are really specifically looking for protein. And that's that protein satiety theory. Like more than half of your hunger hormones are regulated by protein. So this is why people doing a, a really high protein diet or even a carnivore style diet. One of the things that they report is like, I never think about food. I'm never hungry. Well, that's because they're meeting that their protein needs for satiety. And because so many of our hunger hormones are regulated by protein and in the lack or absence of protein, we have major cravings for sugar. And so decreasing sugar cravings can be attained by creating a new habit, which is eating enough protein and not being at a suboptimal level of protein. And that is so critically important for women because it is demonized. Like you said, you've had Diana Rogers on your show. I've had her on mine, her and Rob Wolf. Like I love the work that they're doing. Um, you know, I, I see it in when I'm working with clients, working towards fertility, you know, potentially doing fertility treatments, really like dialing in the protein because ounce for ounce compared to any other food, it is the most nutrient dense in regards to B vitamins, fat soluble vitamins, amino acids, minerals critical for thyroid health immunity, like iron. I mean, literally the mineral iron. needed to iron. take yes. to, to take yeah. oxygen and nutrients to every single freaking cell in your body. Like you need this stuff. And it literally it makes you feel so vibrant. And so I'm a I'm a major proponent of of that just in regards to its ability to regulate our hunger hormones and make our ourselves make us feel our best. Because you know, then you layer on um, you know, a cycling woman who is is going to bleed, who has all of these other requirements, not just to, I guess, eat and poop and sleep and, and use their brain. We have to prepare our body to receive sperm, to get pregnant, to shed our lining if we're not pregnant. And we're in flux constantly, which means our appetite's in flux constantly, which means our, you know, our mood may be in flux. And so I think understanding how to regulate your hunger hormones and how critically important protein and fat are to supporting your blood sugar balance and supporting your hormone health can be really freeing for women and um 
And so more often than not, I find people under eating and not always under eating calorically, but definitely under eating in their essential nutrients. Yeah. And I would, I would add on to that for um, women when we talk about sort of male and uh, female differences. One of the things that obviously men have more of than, than women is testosterone, uh, even though um, I will say that testosterone is the most sex, abu- you know, it is the most abundant sex hormone in the female body more so than estrogen, even though we typically think women estrogen. Yes, that's true. And we have more testosterone than we do um, uh, estrogen. Testosterone is really important in managing blood glucose, right? So to your point, um, you know, around uh, women and menstruation, we need a, uh, and this is maybe getting into kind of peeling apart belief systems as well for for women, but we need to be putting on muscle. We talked about this on your show. Um, and we also need to get maybe a little bit more comfortable that as a menstruating woman, if you are still in your years of, re- you know, your reproductive years, that you need a higher baseline level of fat than your male counterparts do. Like when I was, when I was competing and, you know, I would never do this again, but I got down to 8% body fat, like before the show, like that is, and, and yes, I lost my period. Like I, I was, was going to say, what happened yeah, next? <laughs> yeah. I was amenorrheic for about three months. And then when it came back about maybe month four, month five, I, I can't recall which one it was, it, it was a gong show. It was a gong show for like easily six to nine months after that. I was working to kind of get it back to what it, you know, was sort of like 29 day, like I was a 29 day girl. And then it was sort of all over the map for a little bit. So I think it's important for women and there is a large, there's a lot of clinicians that listen to the shows, a lot of women that listen to the show. I think it's important for us to understand our differences, particularly. So we've been talking about satiety hormones. Um, I think that there are kind of sexual dimorphisms like the testosterone. I think with leptin, there's also, you know, even with that, there's almost, there's also, uh, differences in the lipostat, right? So women seem to be uh, more leptin resistant or, or, you know, in the same way that I mentioned, you know, if someone is fasting, if you have men and women that are equated for BMI, it does appear that females hit that hunger point earlier. And there is a certain level of leptin resistant that seems to be present more so in females than, than in men. Um, and one of the unfortunate things uh, maybe about leptin is that it seems to be more protective against fat loss than it does fat gain, right? Much to the chagrin of everyone who's like trying to lose weight, right? It is really going to, um, you know, particularly with leptin resistance, as you mentioned, very similar to insulin resistance, where, you know, you have the calories, but the appetite, you know, the regulation centers in the brain, like the hypothalamus and otherwise, for whatever reason, are not picking up the leptin that's being re- that's being released from the adipocyte. And then of course what happens is we don't, you know, I I I said this in my book like leptin tells you to put the fork down, right? It's like it, you're, you the fork stays kind of uh in motion and then we get this caloric surplus which leads to uh weight gain, etc. So when we're talking about some of the differences between men and women, testosterone, leptin resistance, etc., fat mass, uh muscle mass, what are some um actionable items. So we talked about protein, like prioritizing fat and protein. Uh, You've mentioned prioritizing protein in the beginning of the day. Mm -hmm. What might be some other strategies that a woman, and we'll we'll kind of categorize women in like women in their reproductive years, and then women that are in uh, menopause or transitioning into menopause, what might be some useful strategies that you would recommend for someone to help the 
symphony of satiety and metabolic hormones to come into balance. Um, mm -hmm. And what does that look like sort of on an everyday basis? Yeah. Um, well, there was this interesting st study that came out in Cell uh, about a month ago, and it was looking at two different diets and then the combination of it. So it was looking at a low carbohydrate diet, which is a whole food diet of mostly low glycemic vegetables and fruits. And then it was looking at time-restricted eating of an eight-hour window of time-restricted eating. And then it was looking at both. And so what they found with the low-carbohydrate diet is that it was a decrease in body mass and a decrease in subcutaneous fat. So think about cellulite fat, like the fat that's kind of like on the top layer. The aesthetic fat. The yeah. aesthetic fat. Yeah. And then with time-restricted eating, there was a statistical significant difference in the decrease in visceral fat which is a fat that is inflammatory. It's the fat that surrounds your organs. It increases your chances of chronic lifestyle diseases like metabolic syndrome. It increases your chances of insulin resistance, of heart disease. Um, and it's hard to break that fat down. And so even in a blood sugar balanced state of a low carbohydrate diet, when someone's eating around the clock and they're eating 12 or 14 hours of the day, maybe they get up early like I do with toddlers and they're tired so they're hungry but then when they put their toddlers to bed they do end up staying up late and they they eat something with some bingey type show that they're watching like and they're just eating more than more than 12 hours a day there isn't that time to bring down inflammatory markers so it looked at visceral fat and then it looked at secondary markers like uric acid insulin levels a1c um and uh, lipids so what they found was the real push for the decrease in visceral fat and those and those secondary markers was with a time-restricted eating and so then they look at a combination of the two and that was sort of the powerhouse right there right so what's so interesting and i've talked about this with my like coaching group is that women will look at that study or they'll hear me say that and they're like great I'm going to do no carb and I'm going to eat six hours a day. And so right. we always amplify it, right? Especially the type A's. It's like, oh, okay. So if they're saying 12, I should probably not do it for 16. And yeah. if they're saying low carb, I should do no carb. Yeah. It's right. so funny how and, we think. Yeah. 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 And then we also have to remember what most nutritional research studies are, who they're looking at, which right. is middle-aged men. So, um, so that aside, though, this was you have to extrapolate and you have to look at this research and then you say, how do I apply it to my life or what tools would make sense for me? And so what I think is the most important things that come out of this is that a a moderate to low carbohydrate diet is going to be protective against overall weight gain and subcutaneous fat gain that may create a little more inflammation in the body or that may um maybe drive you crazy if that's something you're worried about, right? But then on top of that, time-restricted eating does have its benefits, but it doesn't have to be taken to the nth degree. And what you were talking about when a woman is on a fast and a man is on a fast and you're comparing the two of them and a woman gets women get hungrier faster, in my clinical experience as a nutritionist for the last 10 years, when time-restricted eating or what they called intermittent fasting became really popular maybe like six years ago, Everyone wanted to wait until two o'clock in the afternoon to break their fast. And all I saw it doing with my female population was completely backfiring into binge eating until yes. 10 o'clock at night. Yes. And they went, well, but I, but I ate in an eight hour window. These benefits of a time restricted eating 
the benefits of lowering uric acid, the benefits of lowering your lipid levels, the benefits of lowering A1C and glucose and insulin and seeing a decrease in inflammatory markers would be, it'd be twice as effective if they finished eating dinner at five or six o'clock at night and just didn't eat late night. And so my advice to women when they want to use time-restricted eating is always to eat protein earlier in the day. And for you, first, depending, it depends on your wake-up time. Like if you're 5 a.m. like me, that might be 7 or 8 a.m. If you wake up at 7, that might be 9 or 10 a.m. But we are nine times out of 10 going to have better results in your body composition changes and your diagnostic blood markers and all of it when you stop eating late night. When you finish dinner at six o'clock at night, or if you're if you're the person who breaks your fast at 10 and you finish at seven or even eight at the latest, but like I'd much rather have a client finish dinner, totally metabolize it, get their blood glucose back in range. What we're going to see if they're wearing an aura ring is better REM sleep, better deep sleep, um, better numbers on latency, how long it takes them to go to sleep, uh, less wake-ups. I mean, it's amazing. HRV. HRV Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When we don't see someone going to bed, trying to metabolize food, that's when the deep cleansing happens. That's when the visceral fat starts being broken down. And that's when we're clearing out these metabolic um, uh, sort of like byproducts like uric acid, which no one was looking at uric acid. David Perlmutter wrote an amazing book called Drop Acid last year. And where he really starts to break down and tell the story of this kind of like silent marker that no one was talking about that is associated with so many lifestyle diseases like Alzheimer's and um, even autoimmunity. And it's crazy, but it's it's just showing that the body is working overtime and it's not able to clear this, the junk. And it's just still hanging out high. And that's a problem. It's a, it's a flam, it's creating inflammation in the body long-term. So I would say if you are Definitely, if you're cycling, if you're if you're thinking about having kids, if you're in that stage, please do not try to wait until two o'clock in the afternoon to fast. It will end up backfiring on you. You can absolutely take advantage of time restricted eating. And even I think it was like two years ago now, but they looked at ten hour feeding windows, like a ten hour feeding window. That's you wake up, you have breakfast at seven a.m. and you finish dinner at five, or you have breakfast at eight and you finish dinner at six. Totally totally reasonable. reasonable. And that lowered inflammatory markers that lowered A1C over time. So it's really about consistency when it comes to maintaining the body composition you want and the health of your, of this temple, which is your body. It's really, it's really truly about, about getting consistent. So don't do something exaggerated that you can't do long-term. I mean, we talked about on my podcast, like people that become chronic keto dieters that just get lower and lower and lower with their net carbs and you shrink and shrink and shrink their feeding windows. And then they wonder why it's just not working. And it's like, you got to cycle this stuff and you got to, you got to ask yourself, is it me or the diet? And what can I do to support my body? Cause ultimately putting on muscle mass increases your metabolism and gives you flexibility to eat more carbohydrates, to eat more calorically. And it's anti-aging. <laughs> I know you don't like that word, but it is in the way that it's holding on to whatever youth you have now longer. Right. And and I think that that could be like the most beneficial for, for people. If someone is in men- menopause, um, you can handle a lo- lower co- carbohydrate, um, you know, quantity and 
And you may need to really adjust your carbohydrate intake as you move into that stage because your hormones are dropping off. Your muscle retention is going to uh, decline and um, you won't be able to re retain that, that trunk. You know, you may have been a suburban with the Thule on top. And as we lose those hormones and we're not lifting as heavy or pushing us ourselves as hard, you might take the Thule off. And then we have to look at the other ha habits and lifestyle. You go into retirement or, you're, you know, your spouse retires, you're traveling more, your friends are coming over more, you're drinking more wine. And it sort of becomes this very... It, it, it like double-edged sword where it's it's almost doubling down on metabolic um, dysfunction. And so uh, if you're increasing your alcohol intake or your carbohydrate intake, please increase your, your weightlifting. Yeah. If you're drinking, then just know that you're going to have a date with the weights the next day. Yeah. 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 I love that. And I, I, I love what you're saying too, because when I first started really getting into fasting, I was like, I, you know, and I've had Dom uh, D'Agostino on the show um, and, you know, when he, I was really looking up to him, like he was kind of the guy that I was following and he very famously did a seven day fast. And then I think went and deadlifted. I can't remember the number now. It's like 500 or 600 pounds. And I was like, I can do that. Okay, maybe I can't deadlift the 500 pounds, but I can do a seven day fast. And then I can, you know, so I was like following all these guys that I really admired, kind of forgetting that I wasn't a guy. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're the girls who like to keep up with the boys. Yeah. I can always say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to shift uh, for a moment to children um, and how we can um, apply some of these principles to our kids. I think as a mother, um, I have seen, you know, I was saying to the, saying this to you in the pre-chat, like whenever there's a birthday party coming up, it's like, all right, here's the game plan. We're going to have chicken, we're going to have red meat. We're going to have their, you know, they love green beans. So we're going to have green beans. And mm -hmm. then we're going to go to the cake and pizza show. Okay. So, and then of course, uh, and I was saying this to you in a pre-chat, I'll, I'll just share on the pod too. My 10 year old uh, recently shared with me that he thinks that when he has cake, that he gets a tummy ache. Mm -hmm. uh, and he thinks he gets a headache after. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting observation, Seb. Like, you know, why do you think that is? He's like, I don't know. I just, I don't feel good after I have cake. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that doesn't mean that you can never have cake, but maybe you want to, you know, ho I'm hoping that this is going to be a teaching lesson for him in terms of understanding what foods agree with him and what foods don't agree with him. And mm -hmm. I think when you're a kid in 2022 and 2023, I think it's very difficult to avoid some of these acellular, you know, these like very processed, you know, like at the dentist, I remember, I, I remember switching dentists because they gave him a damn lollipop at the end of his checkup. I was like, how dare you? How yeah. dare you give him a lollipop? So we ended up switching dentists because I was, I was furious, but I think, yeah. um, you know, you can, you go, you get a haircut. Here's a mint. You get a, you go to the dentist. Here's a lollipop for being such a good boy. There's pizza lunch, there's cake and there's, you know, yeah, you layer on Halloween and then all the, you know, the Christmas and the all, the, all, the, and then Valentine's and all the stuff. So, um, how do we, um, how do we navigate that? And then the other topic I wanted to pick your brain about, if you, um, don't mind is one of the things that I hear and I don't agree with is moms will say something to the effect of, Oh, it's just, it's just, it, it doesn't really matter. Like their kids, they can burn it off or it doesn't really affect yeah. them the way that it affects me. Like I can't have the cake, but he can have it. He's only 12, you know, right. uh, which I don't, 
no is the right response because I think that we entrain like we can tell our children to eat healthy, but if we ourselves are not doing it, I don't see that possibility actualizing for them. And I also think that when we're training them to say, it's okay, you're a growing boy, you can have pizza and, and, and cake and it's fine. At what point do we cut that off? Like I would, I would much rather develop sort of the healthy habits and develop the taste for vegetables and fruits and real food early on. Because if you grow up on like Nutella's and all all the processed kind of foods, you chemically become different. You can, you chemically, beca- you know, those bliss foods, which are like very dopaminergic and like they release copious amounts of dopamine. And this is really, you know, truthfully, like the underpinnings of addiction, right? Your brain is Mm going to remember what were the behaviors that immediately preceded this dopaminergic release and let me seek to recreate them. Oh, it was the Nutella that I had. Okay. I'm going to go have more Nutella because that felt really good in my body. And then of course the habituation and needing to have more and more in order to get the same hit, um, you know, just kind of propels itself forward. So how do we, how do we create healthy habits in our children? Uh, and what is your response or what is your thinking uh, or your ideology around this narrative? Like, well, it's okay for kids because they're kids. It's just when they're adults, it becomes a problem. Yeah. Well, first, um, first I want to say thank you for bringing up this topic. I care deeply about it. You know, my boys are really little four and two, but it's already really been difficult to navigate as a mom who cares very much about metabolic health. You know, I can point to experts like Dr. Lustig, you know, who has put his heart and soul into and his work into understanding uh you know our the american metabolic dysfunction in our youth in children and pediatric years we have the highest and fastest growing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children this is coming from liquid carbohydrates like sodas sports drinks uh, processed sugars in the form of anything from maple syrup, honey, regular granulated sugar, juice boxes. These are really fast to metabolize and we didn't touch on it, but fructose, I said, isn't metabolized into glucose or stored in your liver muscles as energy. In fact, it's stored in your liver. And, um, and what can happen is the buildup of fructose then can create and is, you know, that, that fructose can be converted into triglycerides or fat and those fat deposits can, be distributed throughout the liver. And so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the disease of the liver because it's having too much fructose and it has no place to store it and we're not using it. And so it's depositing it, converting it to triglycerides, depositing it into what is supposed to be your detox organ, which is then putting kids at risk of their ability to not be able to detoxify you know, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals and real toxins in their world. Um, and it truly looking at it, you know, the metabolism of it and what happens to our liver, it is a toxin in excess. And so we have to be clear on that. And no, I'm not saying our kids can't have fruit, but the amount of your, what you're talking about, the amount of processed, highly palatable foods that cause this dopamine reaction in our kids it's kind of unfathomable the amount that is available to them. And, um, and so I do worry and it is something we need to take seriously. And I think there are not only am I seeing that people are saying, Oh, it doesn't matter. They're kids. They're active. The problem is our kids are less active than we were. 
they're less active than we are. They're on screens. They're sitting in chairs longer. They have more homework than we ever had. The amount of time they get on their playground is smaller. The size of the playgrounds and the fields have been decreased to account for, um, you know, population size and the adding of buildings and portables to schools to just keep up with population. And with reimbursements to food companies and farmers for specific processed grains, corn, wheat, and soy, the what is now considered a vegetable in school cafeterias is the tomato sauce on the pizza. And so it's really disheartening to me. And the only thing I can say is that we need to start, we need to control the controllable, which is what's happening in our home. And so I am very diligent in keeping as many processed foods out of the house as possible. Because when, when I realized when Sebastian was maybe he was like 18 months old and we were doing a lot of food, you know, our own food. He wasn't breastfeeding as much anymore at 18 months. He, he still was breastfeeding, but we were, you know, making family meals and I was getting him, him involved. I cared very much about the science of like what was happening to our kids and what was, what was important. And I, I wrote a whole course, Fab Four Under Four on the uh, you know the the detrimental effects of excess sugar in kids and i can touch on those and the deficiencies that we're seeing in children that are irreversible like de deficiencies in iron deficiencies in zinc deficiencies in vitamin d that are having i mean a deficiency in iron in children has irreversible cognitive problems like there is irreversible cognitive decline if your child is iron deficient that's why when you take a child to a pedi pediatrician's they will prick your child's finger or toe and take their blood to to ensure that they aren't anemic because it's such a critical nutrient to deliver, you know, or uh, mineral to deliver nutrients to the brain. And so it's, um, you know, sharing the science of of blood sugar balance for kids, eating whole foods, eating nutrient-dense animal proteins when they are children um, and how that can support their blood sugar balance and their cognitive development and their 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 body's development from muscle mass to stature to all of it it's it's really it's really really important and we can't just say they can handle it if the, if someone's saying our kids can handle it because they're young then they're focused on weight and their child does not have a weight issue but what their child might be developing is uh you know a dysfunctional microbiome that has dysbiosis they may be dealing with cognitive issues they may be dealing with you know add adhd uh, they may be dealing with depression and anxiety. Uh, they may be nutrient deficient. And so what the research shows us and tells us is that when we look at sugar intake for kids, uh, they want sugar. They want that dopamine hit because it keeps them alive. It is a it's a natural response. And when they, they did a study with lemonade from toddlers to, to junior high kids, and the junior high child preferred a less sweet lemonade, but a hundred percent of the time the toddler preferred the sweetest lemonade and so we have to remember that they're not the adult in the room they are not going to make the right choice when it comes to their blood sugar balance their metabolic health they are always going to want the extra sucker they're always going to want the extra cupcake and we need to have boundaries for them to protect their brain their growth and their development because when we look at retention studies with kids the children who eat a highly palatable highly processed uh, you know, high blood sugar diet versus a child who eats a balanced meal. And this is in a Western study. So I'm sure the balanced meal is, you know, chicken, rice, broccoli, 
I'm not, you know, it's not a, it's not even a low carb mix. It's just a mix of macronutrients. And no, I don't expect your children to be low carb versus like a high carb pizza style meal. When they're told a story, 30 minutes later, there's a statistical significance in, in the child's ability to retain information from that story. So we are not even, we're going beyond what is it doing to their liver? What is it doing to their body? What is it doing to the dopamine release or their, their addiction p- potential for these foods? We are now talking about their future and the future of our country and their ability to have you know, a good job and take care of themselves, it's affecting their learning. And, and that is, that's serious business. Yeah, it's serious business. And so we can't think about sugar being like, Oh, my kid plays basketball, and they can have the, the Gatorade during the game and the cupcake after the game and the orange slices at halftime. Like, where's the balance there? There's no balance. And that is a blood sugar roller coaster for them and a crash. And a lot of the times these protein bars or protein drinks were created for athletes who have a career in an athletic capacity where they're training north of two hours a day, like north. Yes. North of two hours a day, lifting heavy cardio. We're talking professional football players. We're talking about college athletes. And even in those cases, I may argue that that's still not necessary for them to perform at their at their yes. peak potential. And I would counsel them to look at UCAN, which is a superstarch that doesn't have an insulin release that allows your body to, to perform without preventing the breakdown of your own or the use of your own fat for fuel. I, that aside, I... I mean, that's one of the things I'll do with kids is it's like liquid sugar is out. Like we're not drinking. We don't need juice boxes. We don't need juice to start the day. We don't need sports drinks. We don't need sodas. If you want to get an electrolyte powder to make something taste like a Gatorade, great. If you want to squeeze lemon or lime into a sparkling water, great. But that is the number one thing that we need to look at and then controlling the sugar that comes into our home. And I am not the mom who says, no, you can't have a cupcake at the birthday party. I drove you to because I think that's unfair. But I am going to say no when he asked me for the second, which I know he's going to. Mm-hmm. And I think as a parent, this is where, you know, I love that you said we have to set the boundaries for them because when we think of the neurodevelopment of a child, really the neuromusculoskeletal system, truly. So we know that the skeleton doesn't truly mature until about 25. The brain is the same way, kind of matures at the same time as a skeleton around 25 years of age. So your 12-year-old or your 16-year-old might be lippy and they might think that they know what they want, but you are their substitute frontal lobe. You are the person who is supposed to make these decisions for them and you know this is uh something that i've 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 worked on um with my kids it's like it's a, i'm okay with you being upset with me right now but mm-hmm. i love you enough for you to be upset with me in this moment because i know that the long term gains for this cuz it's you know sometimes it's like well like so and so gets to have you know my friend at school has this in her lunch why do why do i have this in like why do i have the you know, the fruits and the veg and, you know, my friend has like the chips or the Dorito, like the little individual mm-hmm. bags of the whatever. And it's like, because this is the, like, this is the mother that you have. And I'm, and I'm creating like you very concerned about uh, nutrition and brain health and development, like all the things that you're talking about around focus and learning and retention. These are very, and even just, you know, I've noticed, I, I don't know if you've picked this up as well, 
when my kids do, so if, if they're at the party and they do have the piece of cake, they're different kids for about 60 minutes. They mm-hmm. almost become one of my children, one of my sons almost becomes manic. Like mm-hmm. he just can't control, he becomes angry. He's mm-hmm. violent. He can't, he, mm-hmm. there's no inhibition. Mm-hmm. And so you can literally see the prefrontal, lo- like you can see the frontal lobe's ability to inhibit some of these lower brain centers completely affected. And then when he's kind of coming off of it and like, and then there's a crash, right? Where he's upset and he's crying and he's, you know, and then afterwards he kind of come, like, it's like, okay, Andreas is back. And then he'll be like, I'm sorry, mommy. Like, I didn't mean to say that or do that or, or whatever. So we've had some of these conversations and I was saying to you in the pre-chat, like, I think it's a really fine line because I know that there's moms that are listening that are like, well, my, my son's a picky eater. Or my daughter's a picky eater. They're not going to eat, um, you know, the vegetables that I, that I put in there in, in front of them. And my counter to this, and this might be me just being a hard ass is, well, when they're hungry enough, they'll eat it. Because if you, if, you know, I, first of all, I'm not making like what I'm eating, you're going to eat with more carbohydrates, right? Like we're going to, you're going to eat more, uh, you know, kind of, uh, carbohydrates and protein like these and the fats, like these are all very important for, uh, development, but I'm certainly not going to be making mac and cheese for you on the side while everyone's having, you know, the chicken and the broccoli or the steak or the stew or whatever it is that I'm like, you're going to eat what we eat. And if mm-hmm. you don't like it, and this is like, I don't know how this is going to like, don't call social services on me. How is this like, going to land? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you'll, you'll eat it when you're hungry enough, right? Like there, yeah. you can't eat anything else until this food is eaten. Yeah. So that that's sort of the rule in my house. And you know, I don't have picky eaters and maybe that's just a function of them being scared enough of me, but I also think that it's it's my job to protect them from that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me let me share some science that I think might motivate your audience. Um, because whether you're a hard ass or you just never gave up, it's important to recognize um, the average caregiver, parent, grandparent, nanny will stop offering a vegetable after three to five introductions and when they receive a no. So you give broccoli, kid says no. You give broccoli, kid says no. You give broccoli, the kid says no. You stop making broccoli. Kid doesn't like broccoli. I'm not going to introduce broccoli again. Uh, On average for children, it's over 15 introductions for the acceptance of a vegetable or a different type of food. So we want to remember that when you make the veggie after they've said no, and you played it family style, and you model and expose them to that food, you're increasing the chances of acceptance. And acceptance happens earlier in life. So it's it's going to happen within the flavor window, which is before 18 months of life. But after 18 months of life, the only difference between acceptance is the number of introductions. So it's going to go from an average of 15, which is like, it's like 12 to 18 in the study, to somewhere between 25 and 35 introductions. Well, if your kid doesn't like broccoli, I can go ahead and guarantee you if you make meals at home that you're probably going to serve broccoli 20 to 30 times within a year. And you need to think long-term when it comes to getting your child adapted to eating vegetables and not giving up. And ways that you can fast track exposure and modeling is um, and interactions with these foods is to get your kids involved. So that is they go to the grocery store with you. They bag the fruit and vegetable for you. They cut it up with you in the kitchen. They We make it into different shapes. We slice it. We pe- peel it. We dice it. It's in a, you know, I have 
children that don't eat cooked veg- cooked carrots if they look like a carrot. But the minute they're chopped up in the chicken vegetable soup that I had today, they don't think they're carrots and they eat them and they eat them raw. So it's like we we get in our head that, oh, they they don't like this. And so then we stop offering and serving, but it's the modeling and exposure. And if you are in a, I will, a, a mother father household, the father actually has more influence in regards to the kids eating behavior, behaviors than the mother. And so one of the deals that I make with Chris is that he, in this stage of life, sitting down with toddlers for dinner, it's like eight to 12 minutes. Like they're ready to go. They're like, we right. ate, we ate real fast. It was crazy. Someone flung food. Someone got up out of their chair. <laughs> like, and Chris can't eat that way. He's like, I'm looking for dinner to just be like relaxing. And maybe I watch a little football and I like enjoy my meal and I eat slow. I don't want to power feed and keep up with my toddlers and be distracted by them and wrangling them back in their chair. And I said, cool, here's the rule. Whatever vegetable or salad that I make, you plate and you eat that. And then, you know, check, you've eaten veggies for the day. And if you only want to eat the meat and potatoes, whatever it is later, that's fine too. But I'm guaranteeing that you're modeling the behavior of eating these vegetables for your boys, knowing that you have a stronger influence. And that's, you know, research back. That's not me just saying dads have more influence. It's, it's. That's fascinating. I didn't that know that. That's pretty, great. it's pretty yeah. inf- exciting. And so. The more you can get a kitchen tower, get your kids a kitchen knives, get the, you know, get, get them involved. I mean, to the point, I know it's a little bit more messy, but like I always, anytime I'm roasting veggies, it's like, who wants to, who wants to do the seasoning? And it's like, they shake it on the veggies. Sometimes it's, they're a little light. Sometimes it's a little heavy. Sometimes it's on the floor, but they eat them more often than not when they've been involved in the process. And so if it's herbs you want to introduce, can you do a quick like pot of herbs in your backyard or on a you know balcony or wherever in your kitchen window? Like, how can you do the process with them and get them involved? Um, because that's gonna it's the modeling and exposure that truly changes behaviors. And so, knowing you, you've cared about nutrition your whole life, like you're eating a specific way in front of your kids, you're modeling and exposing them to this, you're getting them over that hump faster. And now they're even to the point where they're associating their symptoms with with what they're eating, which is, uh, I have clients in their 30s and 40s that have no association with the foods that they're eating, having any effect on their mood. They just think this is how I feel all the time. And once we can unravel that and uncover that, there's real motivation behind feeling good because they feel in control and empowered to make those choices. Like we went to the cheesecake factory with my parents who love the cheesecake factory. And my mom got a strawberry lemonade and Bash and I got a Pellegrino with lemons. Like we always do. And Bash was like, mommy, what is, what does Jamma have? And she's like, Ooh, my mom always goes like, Ooh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Always. And I'm like, it's okay, mom. I was like, okay, Bash, did you want to get a kid's strawberry lemonade? Yes, I do. He drank it so fast. Again, taking you back to that lemonade study. I should have like even thought of it because I'm not trying to create this like off limits thing where he's going to want to go crazy outside of my house, but it's, we're out, we're at a restaurant, we're celebrating, you know, they had like come to his soccer game or something. And we were like going to dinner with my parents and he drank it so fast that within eight to 10 minutes, we were in the bathroom at the cheesecake factory, the women's bathroom. And mind you, he's like a four-year-old having diarrhea Mm -hmm. in the, you know, handicapped stall. I'm holding his feet because they don't hit the ground. 
He's like on five like seat covers. And we were back and forth in that bathroom half a dozen times before his meal came. And I had to connect the dots for him that that did it taste really sweet. It was it, it's a liquid. So it, it's, it goes in your tummy really fast and it might go through you really fast. And, and sometimes, you know, our body can handle just enough sugar, but it's hard to say no to sugar. So sometimes we drink it really fast and we drink a lot of it. And like your son with the cake, Sebastian's four, but we're making that association. And he's able now to say when we're at the birthday party and he wants the second cupcake and I can say, okay, remember that one time? And it may not be like this, but I don't know how much sugar is in that cupcake. Did it taste really sweet? Do you think we should take a break? And then maybe later today, if you still want something sweet, we can find something else to have. And then you're at home. So, you know, like there's other things that you can offer that you are a little more in control. Um, Making those associations can really make a difference at whatever age your kid is, not to demonize a food, but your body is able to metabolize anything and everything. That's the coolest thing. And we can detox the heck out of any toxin, but it's the quantities that need to be in consideration of like what we we can, if we can handle everything, great. But at a certain point, there might be too much for us to handle. It might have side effects. I think this is such an important message. I think this is, you know, you were saying this is the future of our, this is our future generation. It is our responsibility to to guide them in the way that we that we know best, like now that we know better, that we can do better. And no worries for anyone that's been like, man, my kids have been raised on box juices and Nutella. Like, that's okay. You know, 25 to 30 times, like if you're a hard ass like me, that's a month. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or or maybe a more reasonable, you know, more reasonable approach, as you mentioned, 20 to 30 times over the course of a year where you can start overcoming some of that uh, inertia, let's say for change. Um, And children are adaptable. Like, I think that's one of the more, you know, beautiful thing. I think the human, just the human body in general so adaptable. Like you said, it'll metabolize, it'll, it'll break down and make something of anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, I, I do, I do really like that message. And I think that we can, you know, if we kind of think about, okay, what's the best, what's the long-term game mm-hmm. here? Um, I think that that's, that's a, a useful lens to, to be on. And I'm, I'm just, I just glanced up at the time, Kelly, we've been talking for two hours like I know. Seven, seven minutes away from two hours and I, know. I, 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 I was I, just texting my sister sorry I was like I was like I will be there shortly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going on a little so out of just out of respect for your time um let's let's wrap up here I definitely think there's a part two here Okay. Uh, there's something I want to, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of our, the emotional, uh, aspect of food, the emotional relationship that we have, particularly with like women and carbohydrates and keto. We, we've kind of danced around it in our conversation, but we'll sufficient to like suffice it to say we'll have a part two. Um, this has been such a joy to talk to you and spend the day with you, really. Yeah. Um, I feel like the way that you present information is so, easy to digest. And I think that it's very obvious when somebody really knows their material, um, that they're able to uh, teach in a way that is accessible to the masses. Like you don't need letters behind your name. Like anybody can kind of get what you're saying. Uh, there's like a far side simplicity 
uh, like there's been a lot of thought and deduction and addition through subtraction um, that you've um, that you and a lot of thinking that you've done. So I wanted to thank you. Uh, I think that my listeners are going to absolutely love our conversation. And I have just loved talking to you. I just it's been such a delight for me. So thank you so much. Me too. It's been such a, such a fun day. So if anyone, you know, all your, all your Bettys, they need to come listen to you on the Be Well by Kelly podcast because you, as expected, dropped some serious knowledge and it was just such a joy there too. So it really, the day flew by. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> the, like three and a half hours we spent together today really flew by. Yeah. And, um, and it was a pleasure to be here and thank you for the compliment. I care. I think that's kind of my, my sweet spot was is you know i i don't need to know everything but i do care a lot about metabolic health i do care a lot about blood sugar balance but most importantly i work with patients and clients that i want to empower and i feel like education can be empowering science and studies can be empowering if you look at them that way if you don't look at them as black and white but look at like what's the silver lining here the silver right. lining is putting the veggies on the table at even after they ha- said no they'll eventually come around. And the long game is sending your kids to college and knowing when they have their own little kitchenette that they're gonna make the foods that you made in your house because that's what makes them feel best. What a perfect way to end today. Thank you so much. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 